You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. With downloads approaching the million mark, and an archival library numbering in the thousands, the Yeshiva of Newark podcast has been striving to continuously upgrade our content, professionalize our audio sound, along with altering approaches in light of much-appreciated listener feedback. I firmly believe that a niche has been carved out that resonates with many on the wide spectrum of observant Jews. This explains why we continually rank high in independent online lists of top yeshiva podcasts. That proud edifice is in real danger of toppling and disappearing. We need the help of our listeners to continue to record and edit to promote a product that has been a balm and instructor to so many. Just $36 as a minimum donation from a thousand of you out there will keep us afloat as a new arc of straight, intelligent, humorous discussion, lectures, debate, and inquiry, while the destructive waters of ignorance and identity politics, cyberbullying crash around us. Your generous contributions will seal and galvanize this arc till it comes to a satisfying rest in an era of Moyerzdea. Heralding Mashiach, Mehera, Biamenu, Amen. And now, Rishadaraisa, coming your way. Get ready. If it's President's Day, 2024, this must be Rishadaraisa. I think that's the first time we've said that, if this is President's Day. Well, it's more important than that. It's Yud Adar Aleph. Yes, yes, Yud Adar Aleph. I'm not sure exactly what the significance of Yud Adar is. My birthday. Oh, it's actually, if this, let's try that again. <laughs> if it's the 62nd birthday of Rabbi Yisif Gavriel Bechofer, this must be Rizcha Daraisa. Ah, so you've actually reached Sab, Samach Beis, which we know is the Shirish of being old, right? In Aramaic, that's what it is. You're a, well, this, you're coming, a this coming year is the Karakasmas of Yeshem Samach Gimel. What can we say about that? I, in what I said to you last week about your dabbling into into Kabbalah, yes, all the shemais. I think as you reach this age, the pegimas that you're going to be pegim are probably less effective than they were when you were young anyway in those shemais hakadoshim. So yeah, go ahead. Open yourself up to the the hinterlands of, of mystical thought. You're not going to do much uh, good or damage, probably, uh, in your forays there. But let's talk about let's Thank let's you. talk about let's talk about. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's talk about president. I, I just want you to be realistic. That's all. Let's talk about presidents and realism. You know, this is a day that was sort of melding Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday. Washington's birthday, of course, is February 12th. Lincoln's birthday was February 22nd. So they made a pshara that a uh, big night towards Lincoln will be the first Monday before the 22nd. Uh, and then we'll just call it President's Day. And maybe we'll think about other great presidents as well. And then let's put it on Monday. So this way, it's all part of a great shopping vacation experience. And people like you, Rabbi Yosef, can have a day off from school and, you know, et cetera. So that's obviously, if it doesn't happen on Monday, it's not a real holiday because it really. Well, they, they hold that it's token that, uh, you know, they wanted to give an extra day for a vacation. But the reality really is that no one really cares so much about the lives and accomplishments of of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln uh, to use the day to think about them. I think MLK does a lot better these days. You know, the the Martin Luther King birthday, even though it's not exactly on his day, at least it's still fresh enough in legislation 
that the day is dedicated to thinking about him. But I'm not sure how many people today are are thinking about the leadership that Lincoln showed or the statesmanship and tightrope walk that George Washington did uh, coming before the revolution. And listen, you've been teaching history. Well, who thinks about Memorial Day? Right. Again, well, part of the reason we don't think about Memorial Day is because we have so little of of the populace that is in the armed services and that has uh, people that are, that are being buried in the, that were buried in those graves, in those military graves. But look, before, before we get into generally, you know, how Adonine and Parav all these national days are, you've been teaching history. How much time do you give to Washington and Lincoln and, and what you've been teaching? In, in I, don't do, I don't teach that Kufa anymore. I teach, uh, I teach just like from World War One on. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't really have a Washington Lincoln, but I, I never really taught civil wars. I don't, didn't have much Lincoln to begin with, but whatever I say, I, I say is positive. Unlike uh, some of the people who you might have on your program who think that Lincoln is one of the biggest Shlomo of all time. I think Lincoln was one of the great. Uh, okay. That's a plug, by the way, for one of our other programs, which is of course uh, schmoozing with uh, Rav Meir Schoer, Meir Enechachomim. So I'll let, I'll let Rav Meir Schoer talk himself about uh, Lincoln. I can, he's going to have a hard time this way. Look, obviously the dynamic between Rabbi Schoer and, and myself for those people who are listening to both programs, I know many are, you can tell that uh, I'm much more deferential to him than I am to Rabbi Yosef Gavriel. Uh, but, uh, but I will say I, I'm not going to be a pushover about Lincoln. He, he is the great American persona, uh, as Henry Jaffa and other students of Leo Strauss have pointed out, really the, the, the pinnacle of what American citizenship was able to produce. And coming from beyond humble beginnings – to his great insight, his thought, his people skills, everything about the way he dealt with tragedy and even, you know, shalom bias, it, it really is incredible. I mean, Washington, I think, has been eclipsed in many people's minds by the incredible Lincoln story. You know, there's so much about Washington that is, you know, that is that is sort of like old fashioned and we can't really put wrap our heads around it. And I don't even want to talk about the way that, you know, you know, the Hamilton experience sort of like pushes Washington into the, basically, into the background. I, I haven't seen all of Hamilton. Have, have you seen all of Hamilton? No, I haven't seen any of it. You haven't seen any of it. Okay, but you know that it is an important cultural phenomena, the idea of re-looking at the founding of the country, and especially, you know, Hamilton's staging where many of these characters, although Alexander Hamilton's own lineage is somewhat in, in question, but putting many of these characters as, you know, as African-American, as black characters, as as Hispanic characters, even though that, that's not who they were, but, you know, reimagining the founding of the country. So it did receive a little bit of a renaissance, but I still think more books are written about Abraham Lincoln than any other subject in, in America, and, and they're still coming out. And it's Lincoln and the Civil War and then beyond. So, yeah, look, it's too bad that not much is done uh, in the Froome schools to give you know Lincoln and Washington their due. If any of them are off today, I doubt they are reading any of the letters or being misbeinen on the second inaugural masterpiece of of political and religious thought that that Lincoln did in, in, in that in that work. I know again Rabbi Schiller would would heap calumny on me for saying this, but the the second inaugural it was it was a masterpiece in terms of capturing the spirit of the country and giving Musser about 
what they had been through, the the trauma and tragedies that they had suffered over the last the four years preceding that. There are very few uh, people out there who consider going to Richmond, Virginia, not Leo Laredo. Yeah. Okay. Again, look, look. I said we can have Rabbi Schiller here as our third talking head, and he can he he can make his points his way. You know, he did mention in an email to me today that uh, there is Alabama still celebrates Jefferson Davis's birthday. Um, and they, they still have it on their, on their books as a day to, to contemplate. Let's, let's move from past presidents to the idea of presidents today. Uh, I, I think the question that is on a lot of people's minds, of course, the presidents of, of Harvard and MIT, uh, and Penn that were grilled by Congress and it, it somehow became a referendum on, how anti-Semitism is being dealt with in institutions of higher learning. But I would like to think about presidents that are a lot more relevant to most of our listeners, and those are the presidents of their shoals. Anche Palisade, uh, which where you are presently, you know, reigning as as Melech and Rabbi, the president, I assume, will be more than just the guy who who happens to let everybody in in the morning and make sure there are chairs, but actually has a role in the board with rules and regulations of the shul. And that's really what I, what I want to talk to you about. Presidents of shuls, your shul is a little bit small to have that official president. But many, many shuls, and I'm sure many of the listeners that uh, of Rizcha probably might be the presidents of their shuls or know about their presidents and maybe are frustrated and want to know about that. Halachically, it's not so simple. It isn't just, you know, there's, there seems to be a question as to whether this position qualifies as Sorora in Claudius role, and whether uh, I can tell you on my first and only experience as a rabbi in a shul, this was one of the key questions that was submitted to me. Would I accept a president who was either a woman or a Gertzedek? Because my shul the people who helped form my shul were people who left the shul that they had been at because they were told that they could not be presidents based on the psak of Ruben Feinstein and others that a president is indeed a sroran based on the Rambam and Ilchus Malochim and the Sifrei that the Rambam is, is, is connected to, this would be a position that would be reserved only for a man and for someone whose parents if they, they might be, the parents could be Gerim, but they themselves cannot be a Gerim. I asked Rick Davi Schwartzman, and he had actually written about this topic, and you can find it in the Hadarom's memorial edition that came out uh, a year and a half ago. It was Zeich Hanishmas from Rick Schwartz, who was my Rebbe in Rabonis and Hanogas Beis HaKnesses. And uh, he told me that although that was in many ways the standard psak. He believed that a president was not really Sorora. He believed that the president was someone who was acting on behalf of the people who voted for him, sometimes without a salary, most times without a salary, to do stuff that they just didn't want to do, and they abdicated to him. But it wasn't that he could force upon them elements like the Hanogas of, of a governor of a mayor, of a of a head of a of a community. Okay, I, I would not come on to that. I would first of all let me say that the young Israel does not allow presidents to be women. I think the OU does allow women to be presidents uh, of schools. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is uh, no different than uh, Dvar and Avia. If Amisol wants to accept them, they can be accepted. 
It goes back to the whole issue of the elections and in Eretz Yisrael and Rabbi Zio's hetter based on Dvorah Hanaviyah to allow uh, women to be elected into office, you know, as if they're asking us. But uh, theoretically, they asked us to allow women to be voted into uh, offices of Yisrael. I don't see any reason why if the best person for the job is Shmaya Talion, they can't he had the Sanhedrin. You know, that's the way it works. Okay, so and you're conflating a couple of things. It's one situation where you mamish don't have anyone. And they're, like in the case of Shmaya Vaftali, and they were the ones who had the repository of Chochmah that was necessary. There are plenty of other people who could have done job. They were the... the, the no, not with that type of... Not with the type of modesty and that type of Hanhoga. Look, if Hillel Azokin had to want to hear every single word, despite his brilliance and understanding, obviously they were not just, you know, they could have picked anyone. They were unique, miyuchid, and it was only them who could have done the job at that period. I think it's different when you want to cater to the women in the community because otherwise they are going to stage a revolt and they're going to say, hey, we're sick of being underrepresented. We do all this work. I don't think that that's the case. I think that's the case is mostly that the women do a much better job. You, you, okay, let's, let's be honest. The rise of women as presidents of shoals to you speaks more to their organizational talent to get put things together. To their commitment. Okay, I'm going to have to tell you that I think that's not what it is. I think it has to do with the fact that as we moved way beyond the Industrial Revolution and women had not only had free time, but were in some households the main wage earners and, and definitely players in terms of involvement and in terms of donating monies, they demanded a role in decision-making, which they felt... I don't, they, don't think that's true. I don't think it's true in schools. You don't think... No. You, you think it was just that we finally just woke up one day and said, we've been ignoring these talented parts of our community who are able to run things much better than we did. Yes. Where were we up until now? Women, yes. please come and become presidents. Exactly. Okay, exactly wrong. Okay, we all know that, and I'm not saying that I'm against it because I do believe if you don't well, have certainly anything, sound like it, I made a strong sarcastic pitch against it just now. All I said was that what it was a result of. I'm not saying that therefore it should be therefore dismissed, but let's call a spade a spade. Okay, the idea is we want women to be part of things. They are essentially part of things. We cannot risk alienating them in this situation. The, not only the Shalom bias, but the whole community could come apart. We need to, in a way, use the Heterim that you're talking about. And let me just tell our listeners, are the Heterim that Rabbi Yosef is talking about are the Heterim that are in Cheshen Mishpat that allow a, a certain Kabbalah of certain Dayonim and Shoftim and Edim, even though they don't uh, meet the bar of Halacha. Because, look, I'm a Kabbal. I'm a Kabul of this Din Torah, even though you're not Roy, but since it's a Dover Shebimomo and other things like that, I'm willing to accept it. I'm talking about Han Hoga, position of Han Hoga. That's position of Han Hoga. Right, but you have, again, you are taking this idea that people like Rav Herzog, Zatzal, and others used to sanction and explain why we could have a government in Eretz Yisrael with female representatives and judges, etc., based on this idea of Kabbalah. The Kabbalah allows the individuals to accept in a sort of meta-halacha way. In the same way, you're saying we can also have leaders who are women and, and, and run things, etc., based on the same halachic principle. 
Well, that is, again, and, and I don't mind that. Is there a problem of, with this? Look, it's inventive and it was used and I applaud its usage because otherwise there would be a dead end and there would be, uh, if not anarchy, there would be a tremendous, uh, it would disrupt the body politic and it would disrupt the community. So, but I think, Rev, I will go back to my Rebbe said, that he said that he does believe that in many ways what presidents do uh, is a lot of the stuff Others have said, look, it's not that you control me, but I'm too busy to do that. I vote for you, and therefore I give over to you in advance the things that I could do. But it's not that you have Soror on me. I really like Rav Gadali Schwartz's Hesber a, a lot better, but okay. Either way, I said I would accept it. Let's talk about something else here. You know, I've talked about presidents of shoals and dealing with presidents, and we both have. I haven't mentioned your stint. I mean, you've been, you're the rabbi, Rabbi Palestine. Of course, you were the rabbi in Beis Tevila in, in Chicago for a while. And uh, they didn't really have a real present either. They just had a, the Bala Bus who ran the whole show, right? Yes, they did. So let's talk about the best age, really, to be a rov. Now, again, there's probably no fast rule about this. But I think if you have a community that is large, thriving, that has important needs and needs someone who's going to roll up their sleeves, work extremely hard, and make big changes, it would seem that you need somebody in their 40s or 50s. I say this not to discount anyone in their 20s and 30s. It's possible, of course, you know, there were people who became Rabbanim in a young age and they, they grew with their community. But there is a certain life experience and understanding, a shimush and psak and learning that you have to have as part of your oitzer before you're ready to build. Well, I'm going to take Rabbi Cheska Lando, who my friend, my good friend, Rabbi David Katz, wrote his dissertation, which is available online if you look for it. It's an incredible piece of work in English about the Neidah I don't think it's been surpassed in the years since he's uh, submitted his dissertation. Uh, and he refers to Rabbi Haskalando as this, a super rabbi, as the template for a great rabbi. And Rabbi Haskalando becomes Rav in Prague, which was a prime, prime position at the age of 42. Uh, he had been the Rav in Yampol, by the way, a place where the Baal Shem Tov was there as well. And many, many stories about the Baal Shem Tov's discussions with the Neide Behuda are part of the Hasidic legend. But it's it's been, I think, theorized correctly that one of the things that catapulted him to this position that he held for close to 40 years was his sage understanding of the machlekas between Rabbi Yehoshua and Rabbi and Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Uh, the people knew of his brilliance, and he wrote a letter that he felt would put the machlekas behind and really showed that despite Rabbi Yehoshua and much more famous biography that people knew, he was a Veltzgoyen and an Eloy, and, and people already, I think he'd already published the Tumim by that time, the Neide Behuda stood as a diplomatic person of understanding and brilliance. And from there, he went to the Hofstadt in the Habsburg Empire at Prague. And he really was there at a time that resisted many, many of the negative influences towards Yiddishkeit. And I believe that, that you need someone of that age. Once you hit your late 50s, it's very hard to have the energy and, 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 and muscles <laughs> that, that are needed to, to be able to 
handle the type of work these big shows have. I still think that, you know, when, when, when people in their late 50s and 60s, even in today's world where that's not considered that old, I think the, the big shows in these prestigious communities, whether it's Boca or something else like that, they're not going to look at those, at those rabbis. They're going to say, look, you know, we want somebody who's younger. I know this is very sad for you, but but I think this is a I, I think the Nodi Behuda is I think the is a template that proves the rule. I don't know what you want me to say to this. I I I have no idea what's a good rabbi for a good for a community. Each community has to pick a rabbi based on, on their needs at the time, and they probably most of them don't do a great job of it because they don't really know what their needs are. They they don't have a deep understanding of themselves. It could be an older guy, it could be a younger guy. Who knows? Some people in the shul are never happy with the rabbi. So who knows? I don't well, really have well, the, ra- the, the rabbi is the person who takes the salary, and therefore, you know, the, the rabbi is the biggest expense that the shul has going to a person, other than the building that needs heat and, and security and other things that, that are paid for. Everybody sees the rabbi's check and says, hmm, is he doing enough? All I'm saying is, is that uh, 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 let's take a smaller out-of-town community community that has a lot of transients, people that are starting out. I think that there are two Madragas and Aptown rabbis. There's the very young and the very old. In other words, at the uh, uh, let's say if you go to a place like uh, you know, Hoopensville, New York, right? For example, Tro- uh, uh, Poughkeepsie, right? They they usually uh, get rabbis who are on their, I don't know the word decline, this might, might be a too strong of a term, but on their, you know, their way, their way out of the rabbinism. There are other communities who take guys or always um, there's some shuls, um, which like Nova Scotia, I think, is a shul where it's always the rabbis in the way into the rabbinate. Or Halifax, yeah. Yeah. So these are all, uh, the, I, I'm not sure how, why Troy, New York should get people, or Poughkeepsie, New York should get the people who are on the way out and Halifax should get people on the way in. Obviously, the communities don't, uh, the, they don't appeal to a rabbi in prime time, rabbi in prime time, once they get out of these communities. So uh, they okay. Have to take so look, you, you are correct. I think you know sociologists of the future will look at places like Jacksonville and other places and say, okay, this this was a place that many rabbis stopped on their path to reach a different shul. Let's talk and take an example of Atlanta. Atlanta, Emmanuel Feldman, when he got there, I'm sure it wasn't a position which was meant to be. Uh, he didn't make it right. So, so, so you could sometimes say, Hey, this isn't just a way for me to put this on my resume. This is my English town, uh, you know, Patterson. And now I'm moving to some more. I started in Memphis. So again, here was a question for, for a while, it was a show that people stayed just for a couple of years. Uh, and then there was the thought, why not? Why not Memphis? Why not a yeshiva? Why not? Why can't it be uh, an established community? And part of it, of course, is the struggle that these young rabbis who are on, who are rising, have of finding chinuch for their children in these small places. And will they really create a thriving day school? This is, of course, again, why the Kolo yeah. movement came to these types of towns and were able to change things. Right. Again, I well, don't one know. Of the, I mean, what's the about the American rabbinate? There really is a lot to say. Places like Nashville, right, are now, uh, and, and a lot of uh, New Orleans are under the jurisdiction of Chovevei rabbis. Because there was a time, I don't know what Chovei is like today. I don't know who goes to Chovei anymore. I don't know whether they're producing rabbis still. I have no idea what's going on. But there was a while when Chovei was producing rabbis, 
And they were taking the jobs in more modern schools because YU was not, is, doesn't produce very many rabbis who want to go out of town anymore. And uh, this is a problem because they're willing to take these jobs and become the start rabbi And this creates all sorts of problems for people who were looked askance at Chomavei rabbis. Yeah. And remember, they zeroed in, you know, although New Orleans has its problems because of where it's situated on the Mississippi River and the Gulf and, you know, the tenuous uh, position that the whole city has, as we know from, you know, from, from, from the, the terrible floods and hurricanes. But Nashville, as a Tennessean, I can tell you, had an ascension in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to become a prime metropolitan and cosmopolitan city. But it had been underserved. Chabad had almost had a stranglehold over anything going on there. But it wasn't even Chabad the way we understand Chabad. Um, Rav Posner, who, who helped translate Tanya in English, uh, was, was a wonderful servant to the community. But it was never looked at as a place that anybody would go to and spend years and years there because they didn't have a thriving day school. Uh, they didn't have the infrastructure that would appeal to more young families moving in. So you're right. Look, can Chovave Rabbonim do that? I think Chovave Rabbonim don't mind saying that it's the community of Chabad, it's Chabad, it's Chabad, and Chovave. We have different models for town. Chabad, they don't care if they have schools or not. They have their, their homeschooling base, and they're not going to move out just because of no schools. Uh, Chovave, they'll send to the community. Uh, my assumption is that they send the community schools and it doesn't bother them. And uh, uh, and Chabad Chaim, they'll go to places and they'll start their own schools. Those are three models around town nowadays. Right. I, I think we should also mention probably another model as a subcategory, and that was, of course, the Chaitniks. The Chaitniks also went to these out-of-town places. And although the Chaitniks in New York were considered a little bit different and they had a, a different understanding of, of how do you approach halacha, when they went to places like Richmond and Seattle, they actually you know, were rediscovered as pretty efficient educators and administrators. So I think... Yeah, but Ch- again, I don't know. I think also the Chadians are not no longer in that position of uh, having a kind of a spa. For a while, they were in Mashpia. I don't know if it was a benefit for Christ or not a benefit for Christ. Well, yes, you're right. Richmond is an example. Seattle is a good example. Their beliefs are strange beliefs, but I think when they went to, to these places, it's possible that they kind yeah, of like them. like the Mormons. They were like the Mormons. They 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 revealed themselves as normal and understanding. By the way, I'm going to also put in a, a plug for my good friend Jonathan Gersten, who in Memphis, as a Chaitnik, uh, was a stalwart who kept the 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 day school uh, very strong, and he of course was a very close Talmud of Chait. Did we ever discuss my main gripe with the Chadians? No. What's your main gripe with them? My main gripe with Chadians is they hold, if you ascribe any emotions to God, including the love of Christ swelled, then you have no chayek olam haba. Yeah. So let me tell our listeners, Rabbi Yisrael Chait had a, a yeshiva that attracted intellectuals, fellows who had been to college, and, and, and of a very thoughtful nature. And basically, the the shield that he that he carried and the ideas that he projected were basically formed out of a Mamadian mindset. Well, it's, it's more stark than that. It's more Judaism stopped with the Rambam. That's nothing right. has developed in Judaism since the Rambam. Well, well, again, I heard a number of Nothing in, 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 in,
admit to certain advances in psychology and yeah. in science. It's not that he is a, a medievalist, but the, Rav Chait felt that in the Rambam will lie the answers, and therefore, even in Hanhogas Hatfila in Minhogim, the 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 Mishnah Torah became much more uh, than the Quran to them. It became the the place to look and to fashion their halacha and, and the diukim that they made. And many of the diukim that Rav Chait makes in the Rambam are solid and are great. But as Rabbi Yosef points out, most of the rest of Klal Yisrael has sort of a synthesis between, you know, the Rambam here, but the Rashba and the Ramban and Baliatesh is there. And they're all put together in the same way even the Beis Yosef distilled them. Whereas the Chait Chevra really radically, you know, went back even, you know, halacha lamaisa, uh, to be machria like the Rambam. So, you know, having a, a shear in Mishnah Brura, you know, would be sort of like just an interesting curiosity as opposed to the way to know how to be noyeg al pi halacha. And uh, look, I can tell you that the, the Chaitniks were masmidim and the Chaitniks were very loyal. And I give them credit that they did not present themselves when they went out of town as anything close to being a cult. Uh, they actually earned... As I as I said before, they earned some high marks in communities where they were at. So you know he must have like, like I said. I, I look. I have a lot more respect for for Chait as a rationalist than I do a Slifkin. So you know because oh. no, I'm saying look, Chait was not trying to bash the other Velt. He created his own cocoon yeshiva, and he says this is what we have to offer. And I think what was being offered there was scholarship. It was understanding. It wasn't my brand, but it was scholarship and it was understanding and it wasn't agenda driven. And I think that's, and that's part of the thing, reason why they come off as pretty nice guys <laughs> because they're not out to strangle other people, but neither is Chafetz Chaim or as you say, you know, the, the others. But I think my point though is it takes a, a, a young, energetic person to be able to say, I'm going to turn this desert into uh, make it flower. I'm going to change the landscape here. And again, Rabbi Feldman. Uh, yeah, I think uh, well, that's a very important point to make, which is we should give credit to uh, for idealism. Idealism is due. Uh, credit for idealism where credit is due, because uh, the, the reality is that the Chovave and Shates and all these places where I, you and I might have qualms uh, about them. Uh, Unlike the other yeshivas, uh, from Wayu to the right, they cultivated a sense of idealism and um, uh, a willingness of Chabad and Allah Chafetz Chaim to go out into the lands and have Ashbaha. And, and and who knows how many you know lives they've changed. But again, you know, I think that the uh, and let's just end here. Obviously, the the people who are the infrastructure, the presidents of these places are doing things a lot differently in these communities where you have to brainstorm about turning it into a place that people are going to want to come to a place that maybe is already has its minogim, already has its style, and now it has to blend with the new person who is now coming to take the role. You know, we mentioned last week all our good friend Reb Chaim Tversky retiring and I think this is also something that Teretz Yisrael, I think this is also something that I might be reading the tea leaves wrong, but I think it's going to be happening more often. I think there's going to be a push for many of these rabbis of these prestigious shuls. They aren't necessarily going to be staying 
for the 40 Neudebehuda-like years. I think many of them have got their eyes peeled for Eretz Yisrael already. I think many of them are looking uh, and saying, you know, the future is in Eretz Yisrael. And the only rabbi who actually made that transition and had a spot in Eretz Yisrael? I mean, I think many rabbis have this idea, not very Rabbi Joyce, because he's not the type of person who cares about his spot. But many rabbis thought, okay, I'm going to give up my job in America and go to Israel. And oh, so the, the answer is right in front of your face, is Stevie, is super Stevie Riskin. Riskin is the person who, you know, whatever you want to say about his... I think, uh, he, went much, I think he went much younger. I don't think he went... Uh, look it up. Look up how old Riskin was when he went. He was already close to 40 when he went. He was born in 1940, and he moved to Israel in 1983. That's what I said. Yes, okay. I guess you don't know that age, and that actually, yeah, it's the same age that you came to Prague. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So as we see, Rabbi Riskin was in his 40s, uh, and he okay. had a— This is he, a evidence for your position here. Yeah, well, again, it was a little bit different because Prague was an old community that needed sort of like the defense and progress that the Nadi was going to bring. Efrat was, you know, it, it was it was virgin territory. It was a place that was over the green line. It was a place that Jews needed to find a, to live in order to get to Yerushalayim to commute. And you know, Rabbi Riskin really came there and uh, helped shepherd and stamp what this community is. And even though when I visited it in the nineties, it was pretty uniform. It's changed, and there are. Various stripes and styles in, in Efrat presently, and uh, but most of the time, when we talk about Rabbanim in their fifties and sixties who are going to give up their position because they've seen the f- they want to live in Eretz Yisrael, you're right. Call. Let's be honest again. They've been paid big money by these shuls, and and they've earned it. I'm not saying that the rabbis have just been lounging around checking, you know, you know what's on TV. They've they've earned it, and and they've earned enough. That when they leave, they can afford buying a nice deer in Eretz Yisrael and spend the rest of their time sitting and learning and really, you know, teaching a little bit. Again, my good friend Rabbi Przansky, who is uh, who left a, a very prestigious shul in Teaneck, now operates from a perch in Eretz Yisrael where he can enjoy life there. And Przansky is an example of a rabbi who, who his love of Eretz Yisrael was not uh, questioned. And now, Baruch Hashem, you know, he's able to, he's able to live in Eretz Yisrael, and he, he can leave his shul better than it was when he, when, when he came there. So, my friends, that's our President's Day foray into rabbinic life. Please don't skip the first minute or so of our program, because that's, once again, you will, you will hear the pitch for, for funding to keep this going. And by the way, there is a page which you can go to on Rabbi Yosef's blog spot or our, our own notes from the Shiva of Newark podcast. You can see the link to the Chesed Fund. And for those of you that have already contributed so generously, I want to thank all those that have taken the time to contribute and especially the very nice amounts that we're getting from people. And it's very, very appreciative. It means, it means quite a bit. And it gives me hope that we can really continue the program. What did you want to? I want to, I want to conclude as two either partially failed, par, partially successful rabbis, certainly not fully successful rabbis. The two of us uh, would like to take pride in our Talmudim who have become successful rabbis, including Rabbi Eli Ginsberg, Rabbi Gershon Schaffel, others who uh, actually are doing a wonderful job in the rabbinate. 
Look, those that can't do it teach, right? You know, those. (laughs) So Baruch Hashem, you know, we can't do it, but you know, if we've provided some pepper, salt, yeast uh, for the rabbis, or maybe models of what you shouldn't do, you know, (laughs) we're very happy, and we take nachas in that as well. Take everybody, be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did. Please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. <laughs>